0: Okay, so this is going to be something a little bit different. It's another one of those Justin says things by himself episodes, but I have a specific goal here. Um, I was writing the other day about the best method for actually having an impact on the public, and that's not something that I can figure out entirely by myself. However, um, I thought about it, and I mentioned it in my most recent episode. that. You know, my episodes get to 100 people, maybe 200 at the most. And um, on the other hand, if I want to really have an impact overall, if I do have to, to, to work within the academy to some extent. So I'm going to keep trying to write and and getting published. But as of now, I want to advance an idea that's uh, that I think is somewhat new uh, that I'm going to refine over time. So this won't be the last you hear of this idea. And, uh, as I continue to do my studies and continue to do my work in school, um, I continue in my career, you will hear more about this and, uh, we'll see when I look back on this series of episodes, how it has developed. Why did I randomly tell you, I just had ideas, man, and then I, with baby coming and everything, I wasn't sure when I would have a chance to put this to paper and write a 6,000 word article about it. Um. So I hope to have it published eventually. But today, you're gonna to hear some sort of unvarnished thoughts on it, right? So today we're talking about um, what I'm calling the pedagogy of heretical whiteness, heretical whiteness. And, you know, when publishing, this is sort of a manifesto here, just in the sense that I, uh, you know, I'm not going to link a bunch of sources in, in my, speech here but um it's the same idea as a journal article is fewer citations and a lot more about my experience my position now if i write a journal article about this eventually there's not going to be nearly as much about me so think of this as the the paratext or the subtext of an article that i write in this all right okay so let's start from the beginning I got into graduate school. Well, no, the second time I got into graduate school, I got into my doctoral program, and they told me they wanted um, problems of practice. Problems of practice are basically what they wanted us to come in to study to resolve. And in order to resolve these things, um, I had to come up with something that I was going to be really passionate about. So what I was thinking, first got into school in 2018, was I wanted to address an issue that had been a big issue for me at my previous job, namely the fact that a lot of my students were dropping out of class. Now I would refer to that as push out now rather than drop, but I had these free classes and I would start the semester with 15 or 16 students and by the end I admit that we had and that wasn't a good semester. So I was five or six. And I said, all right. I had a less These these students from showing up. I had no ideas. And so I vowed that I would find a way to resolve attrition. And that still interests me. But I spent the entire fall of the spring really thinking about how to resolve this issue. And in my studies, you know, I was in a language learner's uh, research on language honors class. And I put out a survey and that, you know, that was related to race and discussion of race in class, because in my research, I had come across the idea that uh, teachers of color tend to have better outcomes for students of color. And I believed it in my heart, uh, but I didn't have any evidence for it. So I started to ask, all right, well, um, is this merely because of their racialization or is it something else they're doing? Like, is it literally just put a black person in front of black students the outcomes are better even if everything else is the same? Or is it the case that there's something these teachers are doing beyond just having uh, a different racialization? So I put out a survey and in the survey, I asked about race, and were they studying race, and had they known race in their master's programs, so and I got different responses, and so on and so forth. But one thing I noted was that people didn't really want to talk about race. Right? Now, you've heard this story before. This eventually led to the altruistic shield and all that stuff, but... Um, I had a jarring experience when I went to the AERA conference in Toronto where I posted some pictures from a presentation one person was doing. It. And uh, that person was talking about how students of color are often overdiagnosed as disabled or they're classified as deficient rather than being supported, and I posted a picture with the caption, man, some teachers can be gross, and a friend of a friend got on the internet to tell me why uh, what I was saying was truly, truly unfair to teachers, and this became a whole thing, and I was really confused about it, and I didn't understand it. And it was really jarring because people disagree with me all the time, and being disagreed with is not a problem. But she was rejecting the entire premise of my argument. Not just, I wasn't, it's not like I was saying teachers are gross, and she was saying teachers are not gross. She was saying that it was not worthwhile to point out that some teachers are gross because of how hard teachers work. I said, what, 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 what? Just like, it just it was jarring. So I started, I needed to study that. Like, I needed to study that discomfort, that strong reaction, you know? And I started thinking about race, of course. Race wasn't really coming up in the conversation, but it was certainly a white person who said that to me. And I decided to turn my lens, my analysis, onto this uh, discomfort, this anger. Right. That's where I decided I needed to turn my attention, and so it became that I uh, really focused on whiteness and everything related to it in my field of language teaching, not just whiteness in general, because I had my experience, my decade of experience in language teaching, and I wanted to connect language teaching to whiteness because, as I found from the research I was doing. Lightness and language teaching are very closely related, but they are not brought up in the same discussions as often as they need to be, and that's why language teaching continues the way that it is. So, almost everything that you've heard this entire podcast is based off of that analysis. Uh, So, after I decided that I really wanted to focus on whiteness and language teaching, I realized that my career goal, whether it was my actual job or my research or my writing or my speaking or whatever, was ultimately to challenge white hegemony in language education and education overall. And will it be removed? I don't know. Will it ever be reversed? I don't know. But it can be challenged. It must be challenged. People are challenging it, and I need to be one of the people who's doing so. And so, going forward, after those discussions in the spring, that is exactly what I had to do. Now we'll get to the point about her medical whiteness. But the point is the progression we went from me wanting to resolve poor, atten- poor attendance to discovering this weird discomfort which led to the, Ultra, the shield and all this stuff and realizing that I wanted to challenge whiteness, challenge white supremacy, challenge white dominance in my mental education. So how do I do that? Right. What is the best way to do that? To challenge the missing in education. So I started reading things about uh, critical race theory, and one of the things in critical race theory, and in, in the offshoots of it, in uh, other. Types of research and frameworks that are related to it is the issue of a counter narrative. What is the story that's being told, and how can you tell a story that is counter that? So, what's the story that's being told in education research forever? It is basically white researchers looking at students of color and figuring out why they do things the way they do, and often why they do things wrong with the deficit mindset, right? Even if they're trying to help us, they're trying to help us in a paternalistic way. So, the question is, what's an effective counter narrative? People have different answers for this, right? Some people say, uh, if you are a white researcher and doing research on students of color in a different way, can be a counter narrative showing all the good things they can do. Some people say that being a researcher of color is itself a counter Although I don't know that that's true. And some people say that researchers of color need to do research on students of color themselves and show the benefit. And I've thought about it and, and, and I realized, what if as a researcher of color, I did research on white educators? You know, I, I, I've struggled with this because I want to highlight the voices of people of color. Um, but we still live in a world where teachers are white, most of them. And as much as we need more and more teachers of color, and we do need them, and I hope it gives you white teachers still need a half to be better for our kids and for our adults of color. Not a path which lets them off the hook, but an actionable path. And I don't mean this nonsense where, what oh, classroom teachers do? Oh, this doesn't work unless classroom teachers have a lesson plan. No, no, do that work yourself. I just mean in the sense that um, they need actual steps they can take, And I also think about my positionality. So who am I, right? I am a black kid who grew up with a fair amount of money. I don't mean I grew up like I was Oprah's son or something like that, but my mom was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer for various um, financial institutions. Um, It's not criticism, it's a fact. My dad was, is a consultant. I did not know what that meant. In fact, I' I'm, I'm still pretty sure I don't know what it means but basically he's a business advisor. He gives people advice on investment opportunities. and um, I was able to afford to go to a very good private school for many years. and then I went to Princeton and then I went to the new school although by the time I got to the new school I was paying for it myself. And by paying for it myself, and you know, be paying for it back for a while. And now I'm a Hunter. But um, why am I a Hunter? I mean, because I realized that a lot of the many things that I think were supposedly beneficial about the previous schools had actually been somewhat harmful for me. I don't know that I that, aside from people who did stuff. I think about some of the teachers I had, and I had amazing teachers, but I also had terrible teachers, you know? So as my positionality is, as, a, as a black kid who had class privilege and gender privilege, but obviously did not have racial privilege, um, I feel like I've been uniquely positioned to study the people who I was closest to. And I mean closest in, in physical proximity. I am interested in sort of well-off white people. And those who are in education, that's my work. And um, how they get to be better. How how do white teachers get to be better, right? The question I want to ask in my research is I want to find white educators, white language teachers, ones who are really doing anti-racist work figure out how they got that way right were they necessarily people who were oppressed in some way so they had some experience where they felt that they were genuinely marginalized and they decided that they needed to do something to the benefit their students accordingly. did they just read it But they were in class and then they had a light bulb pop over their heads were so they raised that way by their parents I don't know the answer to this. I can never be there when white people talk to each other. I can never be in a white community space. So I can ask them about their experience in white community spaces, or ask them if it was their experience with other people of color or with people of color that caused them to become generally anti-racist. Now, how am I also gonna prove that they're anti-racist? I don't know, right? have to ask their students. So the methodology of the research I'm going to do is going to have to be developed over time. But the point being, I want to find out how privileged white folks who are involved in education, especially in language education, come to be anti-racist. How do they do it? And how can we make that happen for other white folks? Because we need to. There's too many white teachers out there who are never going to listen to this. Not that I'm that great, but I'm just saying. um, Who are not reading the type of research that challenges dominant narratives. There's a lot of white teachers who are quote-unquote nice, but all they they need to do every day is get up and go to class and teach kids the way they've always been teaching them. And then there's the genuine issue of the fact that they feel as though they're overworked and so on so forth. So how do I get them to, to do anti-racist work? How do we know that their anti-racist work is effective? And can you push people to become anti-racist? Well, I'm going to try. So that's where my research is going to go. For a long time, I thought I wanted to write a book, but write a book about what? I thought, oh, maybe I just want to write about my own life. My life isn't that interesting, I don't think. I think I could write a compelling narrative. But one thing I've settled on, whether it becomes a book or not, I want to determine how does one become a great white teacher? There's plenty of books written by Black people about how to teach Black kids. This would be similar to that, but it'll be specifically about their life. You know, um, how do you become a great white teacher? So to answer the question, how do you become a great white teacher? Generally speaking, you have to find someone. Ask them questions. And ask people around them questions about what can actually be described as a great white teacher. But the bigger question is, can you be a great white teacher? Like at all? Can you be a great white teacher so long as whiteness exists in the form that it currently does? The answer is no. No, you can't be a great white teacher if whiteness exists in the current state. So does that mean all of the great teachers I had who were white? were not actually great because they were white. Now, I want to be clear. The phrasing of that sentence is important. I'm still a language teacher, right? So I want to get really into the weeds of this. I think you can absolutely be a great teacher who is white. But I don't think you can be a great white teacher. Not right now. And not in the past. Yes, I know that's just the way English works. But do you understand the distinction? If you you can be a great teacher whose skin happens to be light. There's not a whole lot you can do about your skin tone, right? But a great white teacher—it's similar to the argument made by uh, by Coates in his article about how Trump is the first white president. Now I don't know about first, but um, he is one of the first presidents whose whiteness is explicit, right? And what I mean by saying you can't be a great white teacher is to say you can't be a great white teacher. You can't be a teacher whose whiteness is explicit and unquestioned. You get me? So, in order to be a great teacher who is white, or perhaps a better way to say it is a great teacher of European descent, is that you must question, right? You must question your whiteness. You must question not just your whiteness, but the whiteness that exists in the world that controls both white people and everyone else. I want to make a distinction, like I said, between white people and whiteness, or people who are considered white people right now and whiteness. There's not necessarily anything wrong with someone who is a white person, right? Or just because of the way the language works, if I say these people are white, and these people are not white, that doesn't necessarily mean that those people who are white are, are bad or immoral or something like that. Um, and no one is going to put people who are white into every sentence when describing a group of people. But whiteness is not it's not a person. Right? Whiteness is yeah, it's a construct, but it's a Powerful, it's a destructive construct. And it's that that is really the enemy. I mean, there's individual people who are pushing whiteness forward who are at the enemy, but it's whiteness itself that we need to fight. And we need to fight it both in education and through education, right? In education is to say the way that it manifests itself in the education world and through education by being educators who fight against white in our classes and in our lives. Because what is whiteness? That's a big question. But what is it really? Whiteness is, 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 is basically a religion. Not even getting into the fact that religion itself pushes whiteness. But whiteness is a religion, right? Think about it. It is... As has been said, the opiate of the masses. Even people who aren't classified as white, people believe in whiteness. That's what the quote-unquote American dream is. It's, it's a dream that you can become closer to white, even though you can't do The only way to become closer to white is to destroy. Anyone who's trying to become whiter, even if they want color, It's going to hurt people and probably themselves as well. Whiteness is faith. It's a blind faith, right? Because it's not based on any facts. There is no fact that suggests that whiteness is better than other things. And I'm not saying faith is fair. I'm saying in this case, it is a blind faith because it's based on nothing. It's based on a feeling. That whiteness is superior to other ideas. Right? Everything that Trump believes, everything that Betsy DeVos believes, everything that all of those people believe is the prosperity gospel. Right? You know about the prosperity gospel, right? It's the idea that you have been blessed with success. And that by being successful, you are therefore worthy. It's this like circular thing where rich people think that they are more valuable for being rich and they deserve everything they have because they're rich. So therefore, how can they not possibly be rich? Um, And it ties into the meritocracy thing that I've talked about a couple of times, which is actually in the later episode anything to justify their place in life, right? Because if you really sit down and think about the inequalities in this world, you can either realize that it's unfair and do something about it, or you can realize it's unfair and not do something about it, which makes you immoral, right? Or you can justify it with reasons making it seem fair. That's what most people do because most people are not so lacking in conscience that they can see something deeply unfair and say that they don't care about it. Right? They can't. The cognitive dissonance that it requires to truly believe something is unfair and be happy that it's unfair or not care is rare. There's a few people like that. But not that many. Most people find a way to justify what others might see as unfair. They find a way to tell themselves that what they see as unequal is fair. And whiteness provides that ballast It provides that support. Right? If whiteness is property, as Harris once said, then We need to justify why you have property, right? The property of whiteness and what others don't. And because it really is based on nothing, we need to create whiteness as a, like a bouncer to keep people out of the club. And I say to you, if you're listening to me, all six of you, that you need to reject that. Not just sit there and say white supremacy is bad, but you need to reject white altogether. But more than reject, just personally reject, right? Because you can say in your head, I don't agree with this, but that doesn't do anything, especially as an educator, if you're teaching kids or if you're teaching adults of color, just say to yourself, I don't agree with white supremacy. What does that mean? That's There's no teeth to that. Right? you need to become a heretic right? you need to challenge this commonly accepted dominant faith in whiteness what's a heretic? Right? who's been considered a heretic? usually people being considered a heretic are people who actually see the truth right? like a Joan of Arc or something like that right? that's a heretic right? they're killed their heresy. Right? I don't want you to get killed. But, like, who else is a heretic? John Brown is a heretic, right? To bring it more contemporarily. White people who challenge whiteness are often in danger. Joan of Arc was not fighting for the same things that John Brown was fighting for. I don't know what Joan of Arc thought about race, but um, they were treated exactly the same way. No, people didn't openly call John Brown a heretic for challenging slavery. But remember that slavery was often justified with Christianity. So to challenge slavery was to challenge Christianity. Ultimately, as John Brown might have said, it's whiteness, it's this white supremacy that needs to be challenged, and needs to be defeated, right? So. I'm telling you, especially if you listening to this or are in European descent, that you need to become a heretic. You can't just be a skeptic. You can't just be a little bit uncomfortable in your heart about what's going on with other people, right? You need to become a heretic. I said all of this, this all started with some mundane conversation about the interests I had when I started my doctoral program. But the point I'm making here is you, you, you need to be, There's a song that I love called No Church in the Wild which we don't need to talk about the capitalistic lives of the artists who made it um, who are Jay-Z and Kanye West but the chorus of the song goes human being to a mob what's a mob to a king what's a king to a god What's a God to a non-believer, right? What's the most powerful thing in the world is someone who refuses to believe in the dominant narrative. That's power, right? And all of this about white supremacy is about power. It's all about power. Race is all about power. It's true, as one person, you don't have as much power as a group of people. And that group of people doesn't have as much power as a government. And the government itself doesn't have as much power as this collective belief in whiteness that we have. But if you don't believe in whiteness, you're dangerous. And you need to become dangerous, because whiteness is dangerous to everyone. Whiteness is killing people. Why do we suddenly have stories about deaths of despair? Because whiteness is killing them too, right? In Appalachia, and these depressed parts of the country. These are becoming stories because whiteness is killing them too. Haven't you ever seen one of those Christmas movies where Santa is going to die? There's a point to this, but like you've seen, Elf is one of them, right? Now, Elf is a silly movie, and I love Elf. Just listen, all these Christmas movies, the, the plot, the point is that Santa's gonna die or his sleigh isn't gonna work because people don't believe in Christmas or they don't believe in Santa anymore. It's weird. I don't know why this is the plot of Christmas movies and I don't understand why we need to support people who believe in Santa. But you need to let Santa's sleigh stay on the ground. In this metaphor, Santa is whiteness. And honestly, Santa is a pretty good metaphor for whiteness when we think about it. But anyway, um, you need to question each action in your life where whiteness is the unexamined, unspoken, and undisputed one I think about how I was doing this project last fall on citations. And I was going through the citations of research articles, in language education. And I was looking up best as I could find the race of the people cited, And then every so often there would be a citation for like a large data set that was made by like a governmental agency. And I didn't know what to to, to do about those things, right? Because there was no person named. So I didn't know, do I count that as a person of color or do I count that as a white person? Now what I did when I was collecting the data is I did not include those in Because I just didn't know what to do with them. But the fact of the matter is, the people who wrote those things were probably white, right? And in my class in the fall, in my quantitative methods class, we talked about where are statistics considered trustworthy, right? Trustworthy statistics are often coming from these governmental agencies, and so. Even if you can't find out the race or the background of an author from whom you are citing your your material, the default is going to be whiteness, right? And here's the thing I'm not going to be such a conspiracy theorist that I'm going to say, well, don't trust anything the government says, because look, man. We have to have a conversation based on some kind of data. But 10 years ago, we were all just accepting the million-word gap, right? as just established data. It's just something we all needed to accept and work on, right? We we are only now getting out of an era where we refer to the achievement gap. I still see that in in, uh, descriptions of jobs and things like that so that's just an example of when you're looking at research like what is actually the agenda behind the data we're using so basically back to my metaphor you need to kill sand. you you need to push against every bit of whiteness in your life and you need to push the people around you especially you if you are a person who would be considered is a person of European descent. If we racialized people could destroy whiteness ourselves, well, we would have destroyed it a long time ago. But well, we can't do it by ourselves. It is unfortunately too powerful. It will only lose its power when people it is designed to protect. Stop believing it. There are millions of people, billions really, Faith in whiteness, even if they call it something else, they want to call it capitalism, they want to call it the American dream, they want to call it meritocracy. I don't know what they want to call it, but when that faith is shaken, fear comes out, anger, violence comes out. Really, I'm telling you, I bet most of the violence in this world, even if it's not explicitly racial, is based on a desire to get closer to whiteness. And remember by whiteness, I mean any sort of dominance over another person. Violence against those who challenge their core belief is faith, right? Heretical whiteness, as I am proposing, is dangerous because whiteness always fights back against those who doubt it, but not enacting Heretical whiteness is even more dangerous to the many who are suffering at the hands of whiteness today. We marginalized people cannot afford one more day living under white supremacy, so I am calling for you, white folks, to dispense with our faith in whiteness, become a heretic, and send whiteness into the history books where it belongs, taking capitalism and racism along with it. I have more to say on this. I will be writing on this and speaking on this as time passes. That is where I leave you today please please become a heretic and enact heretical whiteness or allow white supremacy to continue to destroy all that is good in humanity that is the choice please make a good one